Good morning and welcome, everybody. This time, um, if you could, we'd like to ask you to scoot towards the center aisle of the worship center. There's a lot of people who come in a little bit after, including a choir and orchestra who come in after the uh, singing and music time to listen to the sermon. So if you wouldn't mind scooting and even as you come in this first hour, which has some higher attendance to it. While the Lord has graciously invited us this morning to come before him in adoration, and we celebrate that it is through Christ alone that we can follow that invitation. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And we'll open this morning with a responsive prayer that affirms this beautiful truth. Let's pray together. The words on the screen. With what shall we come before you, O Lord? Allow ourselves in your presence, O you most high God. Cause us Through 
and sing hallelujah. You may be seated and the choir is going to sing hallelujah for you right now. of praise this morning. And our natural rhythm after we praise the Lord is then to recognize our need for Him, where we look at how great He is, and then we remember that we are not as great as we so often think that we are. And so we're going to take some time now for some silent reflection as we confess our sins to God and ask for His forgiveness, and then we'll all pray together in a minute.
Let's pray a prayer of confession that you'll see on the screen together. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And let's pray using the words that Jesus taught us as well. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand and continue worshiping Jesus.
Amen. Why don't you look at someone, look at, for someone that you don't know and introduce yourself, your name, and how long you've been coming to Wheaton Bible Church, and then you can have a seat. Well, good morning, church family. It is good to see you. It is good to be worshiping together. This is a a, a packed house looking out. It's good to be worshiping as a church family this morning, isn't it? Amen. Um, So as we continue in worship this morning, I do want to invite our our ushers forward and uh, remind us all we believe that our giving is um, it's an act of worship. Generosity is our very natural response to the incredible and indescribable generosity of our God, right? And so um, here at Wheaton Bible Church, I want to remind you there are three ways to give. You can give online at wheatonbible.org give. Uh, here in the service as the plates are passed um, or also mail your gift into the church offices. And ushers, if you would please um, pass the plates. And as the plates are passed, I'm uh, excited to share a a really amazing story with you, a testimony of uh, one of the many ways God worked uh, this summer in and through our church family, and it actually happened uh, in our local outreach ministry, Puente del Pueblo. And so uh, take a look at this uh, great video. One thing is so, so, so important. There is something very precious that I think is kind of forgotten a lot in our modern society about just being able to mentor people younger than you and to love them and to, like, lead them. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. God is a savior, and God is rescuing these kids and us through one another. That was a big change for me because there are some days, to be honest, that are really hard. There are some ministry days that feel less like the resurrection and like the life of the spirit and they feel more like Calvary. It's in those moments when God is actually closest to both of us, to me and my students. There's like a peace and a calm from the Holy Spirit because Jesus is like, okay, now you're actually doing ministry. Now I'm actually with you. So that when we do see breakthrough, when we do see the kids have an aha moment in math class or they are like, oh, I actually do love Jesus or actually I do want to change my life. Those moments are so sweet and so hopeful and so beautiful. We've sat with the kids in their everyday mundane suffering to participate in this beautiful resurrection that the Lord's putting in their life. Just the first couple weeks of um, summer, Puente, there's all these church Bibles everywhere. And kids just grab everything. And then I'm like, guys, stop messing with the Bibles. They're like, can we take these? I was like, no. But if you actually need a Bible, of course I will give you one. Now I've got like two kids that want a Bible. I'm like, great. But then their friends are talking around. They're like, well, give me a Bible. Give me one. Give me a red one. Give me a black one. So I wrote about eight kids' names down. And then I realized it's not really fair to give eight Bibles to kids if any 
more should want some. Well, then the problem is uh, one class here is another class. Some kids are getting Bibles, then they want Bibles. And now you've got three classes want Bibles, and now you've got like 40 kids that want Bibles. So I was kind of stressed, to be honest with you. I promised these kids Bibles, and I can't provide the Bibles. I reached out to Chelsea, and then Chelsea found a donor, and it was really beautiful. Without Chelsea and without our donor and without all the people, it would be like, we couldn't do it. So to actually be able to pass them out was awesome. It's like, look guys, look, they're real Bibles. I didn't lie to you. A lot of these kids have a deep reverence for God, but they don't have the words to articulate how God feels towards them. So I would hope that they would read it and that some of them would uh, love the Lord more and some of them would even be saved and that um, God would be glorified in all things. That's what we want, right? <laughs> <laughs> Can we just praise God for that story together? Yeah. How cool, right? This is why we reach out into our community. This is like the answer to prayer that we reach out in service and show up uh, faithfully. So many of you um, who serve, if you caught our elder chair, John Walker was playing Foursquare with the middle schoolers there. That's impressive. Um, but what an answer to prayer that, that when you form those relationships that God softens hearts and has these students asking for their very own copy of God's Word. That's just absolutely amazing, and we praise God for it. So let's go to prayer this morning on uh, that God's Word would be working in their lives and for our other requests this morning. So Father God, we, we thank you. We thank you that we get to see at Puente and through this story and in so many others that you are alive and active in your people. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that you softened the hearts of uh, those middle schoolers and beyond in Puente, and because they had seen and experienced your love so clearly in their teachers and the volunteers, they wanted to encounter you more deeply through your word, and so we pray that you would speak to them through your word, Father. And we pray that you would continue the good work you have started in our communities through Puente and in so many other ways and through your people, Father, through your church at Wheaton Bible Church. Would you continue to send us out as your ambassadors, Lord, to a watching world in desperate need of you. And Father, may we be your people who proclaim your goodness and glory in both word and deed in all things. And so we pray for the world, Lord, we know, and our, and our news feeds are covered with so many wars going on and natural disasters and uh, the earthquake in Morocco, and we just, we see such suffering. We pray, Lord, that you would bring peace, that you would bring comfort in the midst of it. For our brothers and sisters in Christ, those we know in highly persecuted countries of the world where that persecution has heightened and taken on a new level, we pray that you would protect your people, Father. And in their feelings of hopelessness, would you lift their eyes to you? Would they be reminded that their church family here at Wheaton Bible Church is with them and is praying for them? And Lord, here in our own church family, we pray for all who come here today, 
watching online who are burdened and heavy laden. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort all who are sick and lift the burdens weighing heavy on all hearts. Bring your healing wherever it is needed. And Father, we pray all these things, and may it always be for your glory among all nations, Lord. It's in your most holy name we pray. Amen. Morning, church. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This morning we're going to be reading Matthew 26, 36 through 46. If you have your journals, you can find that passage on page 150. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked them. He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, good morning again, church family. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle Reschke. I serve as one of our pastors on staff here. And just this last summer, we passed uh, uh, 10 years of service here at Wheaton Bible Church. And so I am just so glad to be continuing to serve our great church family here. My wife, Joy, is up here. We've, um, in those 10 years, we... uh, met each other here, dated and engaged, and are now raising a family here. We have our three-year-old and our one-year-old. I've got a story about them later as part of the sermon uh, to give you a uh, sense of the stage of life we're in right now. But um, I'm excited to continue in our Matthew series today because um, we're, we're in a deep study, right? We're about 70 plus weeks in the Gospel of Matthew. And so these last several weeks and the next uh, many weeks, we are in the literal last days of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And I'm always struck in reading these passages and in, in studying for these sermons because we have to realize that like in the garden, if these really are his last hours, if this is his last night before going to the cross, 
we should probably pay attention to what he does, right? Because he's going to spend, just as we would if we knew it were our final hours, very, very intentionally. So on this night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus doesn't just fall asleep saying, I need a good night's rest before what's going to happen. He is up all night and it's, it's wrestling and the intensity of the moment as he approaches the cross really heightens. So what I want to do today is guide us through this passage in three major parts, okay? Um, these three points, one, the test of the garden. Jesus faces a test here and the garden scene is important. Two, the agony of the cup. Jesus prays three times about this cup. We're going to explore that more. And three, the battle for the disciples. And as I'll walk us through, not just for the disciples then, but for the disciples now. So the test of the garden, the agony of the cup, the battle for the disciples. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. All right, sounds good. So traditional service, I say this, I know, every time I preach. I'm used to preaching overseas, okay? Uh, Some years more so than I do here with our missionaries. And in almost all the rest of the world, the preaching of God's word is a very active dialogue between congregation and pastor. So what I mean is if there is an amen, if there is an alleluia, if there's a praise the Lord that comes to your lips, don't stifle it. We praise God for the good work that he does, right? And he gave us his word. Amen? Amen. All right. See, that was already a level above than the last one. You got it. So point number one, the test of the garden. Jesus is being tested here. He is being pressed. We even find this in the name, the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane in Hebrew literally means olive press. So this is where the intense pressure occurs where you would get oil. And so even the name is important. He's under major pressure. What? Will he follow the will of the Father or not? He's praying in agony to say, God, your will be done. But he knows what that will means. And that's his wrestle through the night as we're reading. So as we get into the context, I want to share a story with you to keep this in mind as you consider several parts of the passage. But the point of the story is this. When there is a guide who knows a better way, you should follow. Here's what I mean. So when I was 19 years old, um, as part of my studies in college, I, I spent a summer, I was on an expedition climbing mountains in the Himalayas, so in northern India and in Nepal. And this, uh, the whole purpose, uh, my professor, a mentor, he said he, his thing was to study how the human body adapts to the most extreme environments on the planet. So the highest mountains on the planet are extreme. And uh, we were our own guinea pigs. Do you have a guess at how the human body responds? Summary of all the research? Not well. (laughs) But what happened there is when we would get to these overly technical sections, so high up on the mountains or uh, glacier areas or where heavy snowfall, 
Um, instead of kind of taking our own routes that we could see, there were points where we would line up single file and one of our master guides would then go first. And they are with poles testing to either side. He knew exactly what to look for to avoid uh, a crevice or an avalanche area or another danger. And so he would go first. And then it would be on us to follow, but we wouldn't just follow in, in just the general direction, okay? The practice we had to hear to avoid the danger or to take the best way was literally his footsteps to step in his footsteps one by one. And there are times that I'm going, man, why are we going all the way up and around this way we could go directly there. Well, here's the deal. The guide saw something that I didn't. He knew the better way. So even when it was harder than the way that I thought, who's best to follow in that situation? Me, first time on this trail, on this mountain, or the guide who's done it a hundred times? You get the point of the story. The only thing I should be doing in that moment is yielding to the expertise, the better plan of my guide, right? So that's the wrestle. Is Jesus going to yield? The Father knows the best plan, and the Son is here to follow it. So that's the context. And so in our passage we read, we know that after the Last Supper they go to the Mount of Olives, this overlooks the city of Jerusalem, and then they go down to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a a walk down from the Mount. And it is walkable. Um, I've led two of our GO teams, short-term missions trips there, ministering with partners in the Holy Land. Costers, you were just there. Did you go to the Garden in Jerusalem? Yeah. So you, you can still go there today, and this is always a stop. And so I have some pictures from our trip uh, there, if the team can show them. Uh, these are the walls of Jerusalem uh, still to this day. So you can see it is, it is walkable from Jerusalem. This is just outside the walls of the garden, and there's a church erected there, and there's a reconstructed, fairly ancient Um, garden grove of olive trees. Team, you can go to the next slide. And so you can get a sense, this is likely where the Garden of Gethsemane was, and it's still a garden to this day, is a holy site. And so we walked through here and praying as Jesus prayed. I sat here, remember distinctly uh, praying, Dave, you were here this trip too. Yep. And uh, distinctly praying um, for the Lord's will because you you ultimately get around the garden and you come to a sign a plaque that tells you where you are and here it is in the actual garden of gethsemane it's our passage from today and so why do i share this i share these real places because i think sometimes we can miss the point um, that these are real places The Bible isn't a collection of stories or a myth or a a religion that is made up. We don't just read that Jesus prayed in the garden to encourage us to be better prayers. 
No, Jesus prayed in the garden. He was a real person. This is a real place. He is preparing to go to a real cross and to die for real sins, right? So what happens in the garden this night has to clear away any notions for us that Jesus is just a good moral teacher. He was a rabbi. He's, he's a good example Someone we can stick in our pockets with anything else or any other religion we want to worship. No. What he wrestles with in a very real way tonight is how he will be offering salvation. He will be going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to save people. It's real. So in this garden, in redemptive history, the garden is important and the test in the garden is important. Because in the first pages of the Bible, where do we find ourselves? In the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, there is another test. For Adam and Eve, will they follow the will of God or not? And in their temptation and in their test, they fail. And the temptation was to not yield to God and his perfect plan and design. And they actually ate from the tree to become like God instead of yielding to the will of God. So in that garden, temptation won. And here we find ourselves in another garden. And three times, as I'll show us later, Jesus faces the cup. Three times tempted to to say, Father, not your will be done, but my will be done. But every time when tempted with that, he prays to the Father and says, your will be done. So because that test is passed, the first one had consequences for the world. The second one has consequences for the world. Right? So as we'll explore today, Jesus' prayer of submission to the will of the Father will change all of history and, as we know, all of eternity. So that's the test of the garden. Everybody still with me? First point, point number two, the agony of the cup. I'm going to unpack this for us because you may ask, what really is the cup, okay? The key to this passage is what Jesus prays the three times regarding the cup and follows the prayer with the, de- with the declaration. So what is it that Jesus prays? I've organized them out for us, one in a row. So in verse 39, we read, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. And he said, my father, if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, he prays a similar prayer, slightly different. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, but he makes the same declaration, May your will be done. And in verse 44, we read that he left the sleeping disciples once again and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. So it's interesting to note here 
There's a progression in the persistence of the prayer, right? First time in this account we read, okay, Jesus is saying, if at all possible, like, Lord, it's, it's really saying, Lord, if, if you can, remove this cup from me. Second time, he's a little more aligned with the will of the Father going, it seems as if it's not going to be possible to remove this cup from me. So if it's not, again, your will be done. And he prays a third time. So it's that slight language change is important to note because it seems that as he prays with the Father, he's more and more aligned with the will of the Father, even though it is an agony, as we'll discuss. So your next question, which is, pro- which is a good one, is what is the cup? The cup that Jesus is referring to and asking God to take away from him is an important piece of imagery. So the cup is found throughout the Old Testament. Um, It's in Isaiah, Jeremiah, several other places. But in Isaiah chapter 51, Jeremiah 25, the cup, and it's sometimes just the cup or sometimes um, the cup of God's wrath or the cup poured out is how the cup is referred to. But it, is, it symbolizes God's wrath poured out. That's the cup. And in those instances in Scripture, poured out on who? In those instances, it's his people. Why? Because here's a perfectly holy God who declares, I have made you my people. I have rescued you. I am among you. You are to be set apart among the nations to worship me so that the nations in my will will see my glory. And how do his people respond to that? It's not a pretty picture. Rebellion and sin They worshiped false idols over and over, sin against God, worshiped the works of their own hands and not their creator, fell to worship of the gods of the nations around them. And when God declared that they would be his chosen people, a royal priesthood, they essentially by their actions and lives responded by saying, no thank you to God's will and God's way and went their own way. So there is the cup. In Jeremiah, that is, uh, uh, the cup is conquered by a conquering nation. God's people go into exile. And so it's, it's, the cup was often a specific punishment or a time, exile of God's people, for example. But that's why it's very carefully chosen here that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cup is always mentioned. Jesus is praying, saying, Lord, the cup He knows what the cup is because instead of just a cup for one group of people at one time, this is the cup of wrath poured out on sin for all time. Follow with me here. So every sin, every evil, every sinful human heart, every rebellion against God, every unholiness, every unrighteousness, every wrong, and the list goes on and on. Now that sounds heavy, right? How do we know how heavy it is? It's right there in our passage. Even Jesus declares in verse 37, he took 
three of his closest companions, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. But then he declares, as he looks into this cup, as he looks into what the cup really is, he declares, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so he says, stay here and keep watch with me. In Luke chapter 22, which is the parallel account also sharing about this night in the garden, Luke writes of Jesus' agony that it was so intense that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So Jesus himself overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death because he is looking into this cup. This is a big, heavy situation. That's why he then declares, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, please let it pass from me. The main thing I want you to see in this passage and in this sermon is that actually, as agonizing as that sounds, there is an unbelievable hope in that statement. Stick with me. There is an unbelievable hope because this is actually Jesus saying talking with the Father and asking if anything else at all can save people, if anything else at all can free the world from sin, if anything or anyone else can do it, then let's do it. If there is any other way. So let me ask you a question. Can anything else save you? Thank you, Wayne. That was emphatic. No. But Jesus, is it? can't people be saved in any other way? Can't they just be good? Can't they just self-actualize their way to holiness? Can't they just be noble and good and moral? Go to church, try and raise their kids in a sinless environment. Keep the law, live the golden rule. Be mostly a good person. Perfectly patient, perfectly kind, gentle, compassionate, truthful. Not just in action, but in thought. What's our answer to that? No. Left to your own power and devices, would you ever be perfectly holy? I know I wouldn't. This seems ingrained on the human heart. We do wrong. And we do wrong all the time. And, and what do we do when wrong is committed? This even happens in the laws of, of, of all the nations. There's always a punishment that fits the crime right? And so you may pause here. This is an apologetic moment because here, um, the most common question at this point when people are encountering the cup is the wrath of God. Is God some wrathful, like, is he a wrathful monster? Absolutely not. The answer is no, no, no. It's actually because God is so loving that he exercises Wrath. Those two things go hand in hand. What do I mean? When sin is manifesting in a society or in his people in ways that are destroying his people, individuals and his people, what would a loving God do? What would a just God do? Make it right. It is because God is is perfectly loving that he is also perfectly 
wrathful. So this is a simple example, but I think it applies here. Joy and I are dealing with a lot of this right now with our toddler, okay? <laughs> Liam, in a month, turns three, and he's a great kid, so cute. But man, sometimes, when we, the, the moment of play with his one-year-old baby sister, right, Joy? And we, like, it happens so fast. They're playing, and they're laughing, and it's so sweet. And then he just sits on her. And so our, our thing is, well, there's chair time for that. We remove and de-escalate the situation, right? It's chair time. Liam starts to get it now. Is he'll actually, before we have to go and pick him up, he'll stand himself up and say, Mommy, Daddy, chair time, <laughs> like he knew. But here's the deal. I believe, and it's imperfect, because I am imperfect, but I desire to be a loving father. And if my son is doing something that is harmful to my daughter, but even in that action, it's harmful to himself as a pattern of behavior, a loving father doesn't just say, have at it, figure it out. No. We take care of it, right? God of wrath is because he is a God of love. But back to our passage. So now the cup for all the sins of the world, not just anything could work, right? All the perfect sacrifice would be needed. The perfect payment to fit the crime could only be made by the perfect person and nothing less. This truth is the beauty of the Christian story, actually. In every other major world religion, if there is a God who punishes sin or who is wrathful, that always makes it onto humanity. Christianity is the unique major world religion in which God himself, the Son, takes the punishment. Grace is what differentiates the Christian faith. So what if, in a divine and beautiful truth, how could this happen? Well, what if God became man? And what if, because he was man, he suffered as a man and could stand in man's place? But because he was also God, that sacrifice, that standing in place, would be perfect in every way, and it would be without fault and without blemish. That man and that man only could accomplish salvation for all time in perfection. No one and nothing else, right? This is why we declare Acts 4.12. I love this one. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus only him, no one, and nothing else. So church, how beautiful is our Savior? Beautiful. He faces that cup, and as we'll talk about in my next point, faces it and what it means and still goes to the cross. 
So how beautiful is Jesus? Another scripture I wanted to offer to us that I came across this week. Hebrews 4, this is Jesus. Because he looks into the cup, goes to the cross, dies, is resurrected, and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, we read, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way. The garden, our passage tonight, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How beautiful is our Savior Jesus Christ. What this means is that he will suffer judgment so we don't have to. When we fall short of holiness, those who are in Christ have our great high priest perfectly holy. When we lack faith, Here's our faithful one in the garden saying, Lord, your will be done. When we sin, here's our sinless Savior. When we run away in fear at the cup of wrath, Jesus yields to the Father and goes to the cross. So listen, if you're exploring this today or wrestling with the Christian faith, whatever other self-salvation plan you may have, I invite you to consider this. Any other way, as we've been talking about, will not work. I'm telling you, take Jesus' way. Yield to the Father. Lean on what Jesus accomplished at the cross and not what you can accomplish in any other way. Right? Right. Here's a quote from a a historic pastor I've been reading a lot from him lately. There's like 20 volumes of his collected sermons, Charles Spurgeon. And he had a very poetic look at this passage. He says, the whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mere mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. But when he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong, and I'll add, his commitment to the Father's will was so steadfast that he took the cup in both his hands, and here was my favorite line, And at one tremendous drought of love, he drank damnation dry. I love that. And one tremendous drought of love. So again, above anything else we could worship, anyone else we could worship, any other self-salvation plan, that is the only God worthy of worship. Why would we worship anyone or anything else? So, if our worship of other things, ourselves, worshipped us into this mess, God's people, if we worshipped wrongly into it, we need to worship rightly out of it, right? That's Jesus, him and no one else. Point number three, the battle for the disciples. So we just hit the main character of the story, and there are uh, some secondary characters in the story Pretty insignificant because pretty much all they're doing in this passage today is falling asleep when they're supposed to be awake. But there's lessons to be learned because what Jesus did, 
He did for real people and real sinners, and he shows it here. Even though I can picture him every time when he goes to them sleeping, when he wanted them to keep watch, literally just saying, guys, come on. Like, come on, stay up with me, watch and pray. But Jesus is in the midst of his agony, the agony of the cup we just talked about, still showing care. He is battling for the hearts and the lives of his disciples. He is still setting them up to resist temptation, to remain steadfast, to grow in holiness, to worship rightly. He knows what is coming for them when he goes to the cross, that new persecution, new testing and temptation is going to come. And so even in the midst of his own suffering, Jesus battles for them. How does he do it? Verse 41, he approaches them and he says, watch and pray. Why? So that you will not fall into temptation. The temptation is coming says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He battled for his disciples at this time in the garden, and I would argue he battles for his people in this way today and gave us the gift of prayer. That when the believer prays, God hears it, right? He's not deaf to our prayers, the discipline of prayer. When temptation comes, we see right here, this is a powerful weapon of the Lord. Even perfect Jesus is persisting in prayer, and the persistence in prayer connects his heart to the heart of the Father. He yields to the Father. How does he do it? In prayer. And when Jesus comes back to find them sleeping, he encourages them to pray. He's saying, you will need prayer to face the trials and the challenges that are coming. You will need prayer. And I think it's interesting here that Jesus prays three times and resists temptation in the midst of his suffering. For one example, Peter falls asleep. And when his first trial comes, what does he do? He denies Jesus three times. Interesting. Pretty simple example right there from our passage. Prayer is a powerful, powerful gift from the Lord, brothers and sisters. He gives it to us for the trials and temptations of life. Second, The discipline or the pursuit of companionship in all things. Here is especially in times of trouble. Jesus invites the disciples to be his companions in his suffering. He does it three times in this passage. He says in verse 38, stay here and keep watch with me. In verse 41, he says, watch and pray. And then at the end of our passage, rise to meet his betrayers. He says, let us go. Companionship in trouble is Jesus battling for his disciples. What do I think this means for us? Church, stand with one another. Be in community. Bear burdens. Pray. Show up. God designed us for companionship. Designed us for one another. We thrive and flourish in the Lord and in everything together as a church 
family, with our fellow believers. The community of faith. This is why the church is so important to us, not only in our biggest celebrations, but in our greatest times of testing. So listen, we need people deep into our lives. And I want to ask you, do you have someone in your life to say, stay here and keep watch with me? Or do you maybe lean on your own pride or say, I don't want to burden so-and-so with that? Even our Savior in trouble said, stay here and keep watch with me. Rise, let us go. Let us go about this important work together. So take this as a practice to invite companionship into your life. And so I know we have multi-generations here in traditional and in our whole church, and that is a beautiful thing. But I would invite you, if you are of the younger generation in here, start looking intentionally, especially around the church. Look around the church for someone a stage or more ahead of you in life. And ask them to spend time with you. Ask them to speak uh, into your life, to go through the hard things, to ask hard questions, to wrestle. And if you're a part of our older generation in here, do the same. But I would also say, wow, do you, we need you speaking into the lives of our young people. Amen. Because there are many in this service who have been faithful in prayer and in the church and wrestled with the hard things of life for longer than I've been alive. And that is a great thing. We need it. God gave us each other for this because he's glorified in it and it's for our good, right? Now, these are all great. Those are practices. Take them today. But here is what you can't miss. Look at what happens in the last two verses of our passage, and I'm going to close with this. Jesus says, Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the reflection this week that just blew my mind. I hadn't seen it this way before until preparing this sermon. The hour is at hand. Jesus is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Why is that so important? He, he's dying for them. The same sinners who are betraying him, the same sinners in that, that cup of wrath, Jesus is going to the cross for them. For those same disciples who fell away and couldn't even keep watch. That same Peter who will deny him three times that same night. Jesus still invites them into the kingdom, into new life with him to be redeemed. Out of enslavement to sin into God's eternal kingdom. Jesus knows who they are. He knows who we are. Sinners who deserve that cup of wrath poured out. And he here still goes to the cross. That is a grace we could never earn. And that should take our breath away. That should leave us in awe.
And that is the point. So learn the lessons, be encouraged in prayer and community and fellowship, inspired by Jesus' faithfulness. But ultimately, what we see here is the invitation again to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the faithful one, our only true Savior, and to love and to trust Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Because we know on the one hand, we are sinners. But we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. Because it is for sinners that you went to the cross. Jesus, you yielded to the will of the Father. And that means everything. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Would they see you as so beautiful today and in the week ahead and in their lives, Lord. May we be a a church family that continues to grow in our worship together of you. Thank you, Lord, for facing that cup and taking it on yourself. We're so grateful. And it's in your most holy name that we praise you for it this morning. Amen. We're going to respond to God's word with the hymn, Lead Me to Calvary. So let's stand and sing together.
Church, before I close with our our benediction, I want to remind you. We close our services with a declaration to you, and that is that you are sent. And I want to remind us that what we have just been talking about, receiving that grace from God, that is a gift we were never meant to keep to ourselves. So when we say you are sent, it is offering that to the world. Families, loved ones, places of work, schools, every area of influence. There is good news about a good God to share with the world. Amen? Amen. That is what you are sent to do. So I'll close with the blessing from Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that his ways may be known on earth and his salvation among all nations. So church, you are sent. Have a great week. We love you.